as some tiny print. Uh, I want to tell you all, get healthy, please, so that we have more room in the bulletin. Do your best, eat right, exercise, uh, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Um, Lots of good things that could happen. But if you look on that back page, you're going to see a few events. Uh, We're going to be meeting as a congregation in about a month, a little less than a month. Please plan to be there. We'd like everybody to come. Uh, There's also going to be a couple of outreach events. Uh, That means this coming Saturday and Sunday, John Freeman will be here. And that, if you look around and you see some of the troubles that are in our society, a lot of them are linked either to what was in the bag, money, or sex. Sex and money are some of the two biggest um, tools that are used in our society to bring people down. Our culture doesn't want us to to regulate either of them. They want them all to abound. And God always said there's a place for them. So we, when, um, when John comes this Saturday and Sunday, especially for men on Saturday, I really want to encourage you to invite other guys to come. The three issues of pornography, same-sex attraction, and also of, um, of extramarital activity, these are the things that John has been working his whole life to try to equip churches and to be able to come alongside people, to be able to minister in these areas. Uh, If I were to ask you to stand up, if you know somebody that's been already plagued by one of these things, I'd be surprised if anybody's still sitting. But I'm not sure if we're ready to give the reason for the hope that is in us. And John's going to be here to be able to help, especially guys. And then on Sunday, we're going to all gather in the fellowship hall. Unless we overflow, we'll come into here. But we would like to be better equipped to be able to share the hope that's in us. Also, there's a few things like this, uh, the life committee. How do we do local ministry? And there's a few other things about our missionaries. We'll focus on those. But if you read about the missionaries, there's a lot of confusion. So let's go to the Lord, the one who can address those things. Dear Lord Jesus, we've come into your presence. We have petitioned you. We've acknowledged that you're great and greatly to be praised. We've sung your praises on our lips. We've recognized that there's no better friend than Jesus, who can all our sorrows bear. Lord, but we're also aware that we are not in heaven yet, and we're still plagued with troubles. Lord, it was difficult news to hear that our brother Bob Braun, with all of his vim and vigor, is only running at 25%. Lord, I pray that you will give him a renewal of energy I pray that his upcoming uh, procedure on Monday will be very, very successful. Lord, we love to see more energy to see the kingdom of God grow just like Bob demonstrates day after day. I do pray that you will help us all to be inspired to follow in that example. There are those of us who are troubled with a dose of mortality. The cancer diagnosis has come not on one but on another We've also seen others who have gone to the doctors and are looking for potential cancer issues. Lord, what a a sad era in which we live to realize that our bodies are producing cells that don't need to be there. They even have fancy names for them. Some of us have already gone through little procedures to remove some of those cells if possible or even to do invasive surgery to take them away. Lord... We pray that you will strengthen the saints so that they might be able to do the work of the ministry, that they might be able to love you 
But we also know that health conditions do not thwart our ability to be in relationship with our God. In fact, the reality is that we often draw nearer to you, nearer my God to thee, when we are troubled. So I pray that you will draw all these names that have been listed here to you. I pray that you will give them comfort and peace, that your rod and your staff will comfort them. I also pray that you will give deliverance to those who are struggling with habits and with hurts, with hang-ups. I pray that you will help us to not just be sayers of mercy, but doers of it. Lord, when the Ten Commandments were given and summarized, we all know that the first supplemental group, the first five, the first four, is to love God more than anything, more than life itself. But we often forget the second part, to have love for our neighbor as we would love ourselves. Oh, Lord, I pray that you will bless the missionaries we have, that they will extend the love of Jesus Christ to places that we may not go. And, Lord, I also want to give thanks that you are not on vacation, that you are not asleep. We do not have to join with the prophets of Baal to try to wake you up or to get you to answer, to grab your attention. Lord, we thank you that you are a God that is eternally vigilant. We're thankful that you are the one that is in construction. The project is us. You have begun the good work. And we are confident, as Paul said in Philippians 1.6, that you will finish that construction project to make us to be more like Jesus, to ready us for our home in heaven that you've also gone to prepare. Lord, I pray that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And these things I pray... In Jesus' name, amen. What a beautiful day to come to church. Uh, we all know that spring is in the air. When you come down that, that road towards the, uh, the, the sanctuary, it is lined with these new blossoms. And the next thing you're going to see is more and more little green leaves, and then it'll be a shade tree. It's a beautiful thing to see God's handiwork. But there's a lot of people who don't give God the credit for it. Today's message is an interesting message where it says we want people to see the love of God. The text that we're turning to is Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. There's a couple of other passages, but Acts chapter 3 verse 6. And also I'll be highlighting Acts chapter 4 verse 32. So if you will, join with me in reverently attending to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word as it was given in its originals. And in chapter 3 we'll be looking first at verse 6. At verse 6 the answer is, Peter said, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. The other text in chapter 4, verse 32. Chapter 4, verse 32. It mentions, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Now, please keep your Bibles open because I'm going to be looking at some of the supporting texts that are around them. 
I want to explain the Word of God. The, the beauty of a Reformed worship service is not that you just get to hear stories and nice platitudes, but that you get to hear God's Word expounded. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you will take these words that were penned more than 2,000 years ago, or roughly that long ago. I pray that you will give them the power that we believe is in the Word of God. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Help it to pierce through the heart and skin. And I pray that it will bring softness to our souls. And then it may feed us, as Jesus put it. For the Word of God is like meat and milk. It strengthens us. Oh, Lord, help us to feast on it this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The story that we're looking at in Acts chapter 3 is the story of Peter and John, who, if you look at chapter 3, verses 1 and following, you're going to see that they had come to church. It was, and it was in the afternoon, because if you look at the particular text, you're going to find that uh, it was the 3 o'clock prayer meeting. What are you talking about, Pastor? Hey, did you realize that people actually went to church and prayed? And this was a common custom, and that's the way it says. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, which was three in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. That is the context to this story. And I pray that as we unpack it and unfold it, you're going to see a whole lot more here than maybe what you saw before. God is doing something in Acts. God is shaking things up. God is not passive. God is not weak-kneed. And God is not asleep, as I've indicated already. God is saying that you shall receive power. And after that, the Holy Ghost is going to come upon you. And you're going to be witnesses to me here and there and even to the ends of the earth. Where did I get that from? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The writer of the book of Acts, Luke by name, is writing to his friend and he says, this is the way God works. God is saying that you're not supposed to sit on your thumbs and stay in the upper room for the rest of your life. You know, it's like running a football team. You can have a huddle, but you have to break from that huddle and go and do. And that's what we find in the book of Acts. They've been huddled up for a while after Jesus died, after he was resurrected, after he ascended on high. He told them to huddle up and pray, and then he was going to call the play, and they were going to break, and they were going to do what Jesus told them to do. Wow. Those were exciting times. But there's a little bit of fear, because who, when you play football, if you're playing in peewee league, you know, everybody's kind of equal. But if you're bigger than the other side, then it's no big deal. It's a lot of fun. Depends who's on the opposite side of the line of scrimmage, right? Well, God is telling these people that he's telling his people, we're going to go into the world. We're going to advance. The gates of hell won't be able to stop us from going forward. Doesn't that sound like a message of hope? Sounds like a pep rally. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Do you believe that? Sometimes I struggle when I see empty chairs. When I look around and I open the newspaper up and I don't find anything about God. 
When I turn on the news and the only time you're hearing bad language, I mean, the only time you hear about God is when it's used in vain. And if you do hear a couple of clergy on XM radio or something like that, then you're scratching your head saying, "Mm, I wish he would get it right. You know what I'm talking about? It's we live in a fallen world. And I don't really know if you believe what Jesus said, that he's going to build his church. It's not optional. That's the plan. There is no plan B or plan C or plan D. The church. God is calling his people from something into something. And if I use the terms, you know, use the T for terms, he uses the word ecclesia in the New Testament. Ecclesia. The EX is if you turn around and look at both doors, you see the EX at the beginning. It means out. The door is to leave. When you have the ecclesia, they're the people that are called out of this world. And the beautiful thing about the people of God, you can read it on the back page of the bulletin. I'm trying to explain what the covenant community is. It's the people who've been called out by God. The good shepherd has called them by name. And my sheep follow me, Jesus said. And that's what the good community does. The community of faith. He calls us out from this world into a relationship. And that's the tough part. Into a relationship with one another. Would we be sitting next to each other if there wasn't a church? Would you be parting with that green stuff that used to be in the bag? Would you be giving it up? I mean, if you think through all of these ramifications, the world today tells us that the church is a crutch. The world today tells us the church is past tense. In fact, many of the young people growing up are being told that, we need to, that the church needs to apologize to them because we've messed it up. We're bigoted, we're mean-spirited, we make people feel bad, we even, we even make people to want to commit suicide. Why? Oh, because you tell them they sin. It's really interesting the way that this works, and you almost wonder, God, are you really building your church? The term ecclesia, the timing that, that of our text is right after Jesus has done all the work at the cross, after he's already conquered death at the resurrection at the tomb. And as I said, he already ascended on high to go prepare a place for us, John 14. So now you have something happening about this church. God's following through on his plan. And he says, things are going to be different. They're going to be different. Now, we were all excited in Acts chapter 2, weren't we? Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes and moves, and wow, it's very exciting. Can you imagine on one day, 3,000 people converted? And on top of that, they were people that were from Africa, people that were from Asia, people that were from Europe. There were all these ethnic people that were there. Because they had to hear it in their own language. And there was a lot of different language that they heard it in. There was all kinds of diversity. 3,000 people saved. You wouldn't have even wanted to go to bed that night. Wouldn't that have been exciting? That's chapter 2. We're in chapter 3. The pep rally's going to carry on. Everything's going to go great. We're going to see another 3,000 saved today, right? Acts chapter 3. And what do we introduce? God in his providence, as Luke records us, tells us about something about the church that might mess us up. 
It's not going to be as big and as glorious as we thought. Because the big church leaders are paying attention to nobodies. This doesn't make sense, does it? Peter and John are coming out. I mean, they're going about to do the prayer. They're doing all the religious stuff. But while they're going, they do a timeout. And they stop. And they interact with this guy. We don't even know his name. We don't know his name. Is this really the business of the church? Is this how the church is going to grow? Well, the thing that you want to see here is that last week we talked about prayer. We talked about the people of God praying. And if you left this place and you were convinced that you never needed to pray, I don't think you had your ears open because the people of God are a praying people and they can't neglect prayer. It's like breathing in oxygen. How many of you can hold your breath for more than five minutes? If you could, you won't take another breath. The point I'm trying to get, though, is praying is what God's people do. But secondly, we find out immediately in the text is that they care. They have love. Compassion is the word in the text or in in the scriptures. Compassion. And as I want to unfold, what is compassion? I want you to see in the story in Acts chapter 3 that the people of God are compassionate people and we see it from the leadership down. We see that this is important. This is not something that you just blow off and delegate to somebody else. Oh, over you on the right side, you take care of the compassion. We'll take care of the important stuff. When you see in God's sovereign decree that the church that is being built on the foundation that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, it pays attention to individuals. Do you know of any individuals that are hurting? Do you know of anybody that's struggling? In the bulletin, we list all the people that are willing to express what those struggles are. But when we look around the room, a lot of you don't share the things that bother you. Because you don't want people to know. It's better to just bury it inside, right? The church with the power of the Holy Spirit is not free to do nothing. We are empowered to love our neighbor as ourselves. So let's unpack this text, if you will. There's three points to be able to help you to understand it. The first one has to do with the word recognize. The second one has to do with the word respect. And the third one has to do with the word respond. And so when you see the compassion of Christ that bubbles up inside of us, you're going to see these things unfolding. You're going to see it right in this initial text, right at the beginning of the expanding, organizing church. Wow. The reason I have to tell you this is as I was doing my reading and stuff, I ran across a quote from G.K. Chesterton. And he said... The church is in trouble. He said, the people in the church are the greatest obstacle for others to come into the church. It was a slam. And when I started to unpack that, that was in another person's sermon that was talking about the love that Christians have. Or maybe it should be said, the love that Christians don't display. Before we come to the communion table, I want you to examine your own heart. Now, the first particular part of this is that 
We see that compassionate caring is first in recognizing. So if you have your Bibles open, you're going to clearly be able to see what was happening here at the text. Uh, And in verse 2, after Peter and John are going up, they end up seeing this guy. And verse 4 says, Peter directed his gaze on him, as did John. The first point that Luke brings out, and Luke is big into the eyewitness account, he is saying, hey, did you know that the big wigs of the church, Peter and John, these are the big guys. They stopped and they recognized the value of this guy. The first point about compassion is you have to notice Compassion sees, it recognizes, it apprehends, it looks, it gathers data. If you keep your eyes down, you'll never see anything. When Jesus was at the woman, with the woman at the well in, Acts, in John chapter 4, he told him to look up. Get your eyes up, look and see. Take notice of what's going on around you. Today we have that saying, like an ostrich that sticks its head in the sand. Why would, it, why would that phrase even apply ever? It's because we are prone not to look. We don't see what's plainly in front of us. It notices. I quickly wanted to show you some things that you might want to notice. If you were Peter and John, things couldn't be better. 3,000 converts. You just have to get to the next business meeting in order to figure out how are you going to minister to all these people, right? Right? Looking at this guy is a distraction. That's what you would have thought. But God does something in Peter and John, and they both notice. They both stop the busyness, and they gaze. When was the last time you gazed? Secondly, notice the lame man. We don't know his name. Now, the Bible tells us a little bit more about him. Uh, As you look, this guy has been laid at the gate of the temple, verse 2. From birth, he's been carried around. And since he's been big enough to be able to talk and all, they've been dropping him off at the beautiful gate uh, to ask alms of those who are going to the church, who are going to the temple. Now, if you would just think that for a moment. He's been there for one year, two years, three years. Help me out. How many years has he been there? Telling you, what a life. Are any of you struggling with a burden that you've had for most all of your life? I can't wait till I can throw these away. I've had them since I was two. And the eyes are getting worse. When you get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing will be because all these bad things are going to be gone. But this guy has been there. He has been lame from birth. It is a miserable situation. And if you're looking at life and noticing things, he is sitting there watching all these people go to church. I wonder what kind of conversations he eavesdropped in. I wonder if he saw people giving fingers to the next person because somebody stepped in front of him. I know they didn't have a car to swerve. What do you think he saw? Because he was on the pathway to people going to church. Oh, and I'm sure that everybody was so nice to him, right? If you're 38 years in this, or 50 years, or however many years you've been there, and you're day after day after day, you're there. You almost become like one of the rocks in the building. Everybody just learns to walk around you to stay away from that guy. You know what I'm talking about. 
day after day, week after week, year after year. Don't you think that guy gives glory to God? But something that I never realized is that he's also seen Jesus. What do you mean? If he's been there and he's been laid there every day, this is the gate that you go through. When we were over in Israel, we went over past that gate too. You know, we were right there. It's believed to be near the, uh, the pool, uh, St. Anne's Church, where we sang. When you think about it, he's seen Jesus walk by. He's seen the crowds. Probably Jesus was too busy for him, it would look like. He might have even heard the uproar just a matter of seven or eight, you know, two months earlier when people were shouting, crucify him. It was only a few blocks away where Herod's praetorium was. But from the eyes of this man, he noticed that the world just seems to be filled with people who are busy. Religious people who just will drop a coin off to make themselves feel better. Now, I also wanted you to notice one more thing, is that we have a sovereign God as a part of the story. Was this guy there by accident? The answer is absolutely not. In other words, for him to be conceived, God had to do it because life doesn't happen by accident. I just want you to know that science could never prove that it was an accident. God designed life. We are fearfully and wonderfully created. Psalm 119 or Psalm 114. When you start realizing that God is involved in this lame man being at, the, at this place at this time, right after the 3,000 were converted... And you just have to chuckle and say, God intended for us to take notice of how important compassion is from the top down. Recognize. Look up. The second point that you may not have caught on, which is easy to skip over, is respect. Respect. When you look at the text, you're going to have to see a few things here that often are never brought out. But the respect takes place is that these men... These, these Peter and John, these men respected this man to give him the time of day. They saw the situation, they noticed, but now they treat him like a person. They give him the respect of being someone that's formed in the image of God, who has a soul that will never die. It engages him, it involves him, it participates with him, it respects him, it loves him. It feels his pain. When you have that kind of respect, you start taking notice of where people are. And oftentimes, instead of being angry, you end up being pitiful. You see how the struggle is for your neighbor. When I look through this, you can notice their body language, their eye contact, and their conversation. When you read the text, I want to be able to... Peter sees them in verse 4. His gaze is upon them, and then he speaks. He doesn't just speak over top of them. He speaks to him. Look at us. He makes eye contact. He says, you are a person. You're somebody special. He fixed his attention on them. Verse 5. And this is what happened in return. You guys are paying attention to me? The lame guy says, this is unusual. And of course, Luke says, well, he thought he was going to get something now because finally someone was hearing his tin cup rattle. The lame man looks, expecting to receive something from them. But then verse 6, another part of the respect. Peter says, I don't have silver, I don't have gold. I don't have what you think you need. 
You're sitting here day after day after day after day thinking you need money to be able to get enough food so you can stay alive. Peter says, that's not what I have. And then you find out, but what I do have, I give you. I found this very interesting as I unpacked this particular passage. They respected him. They talked to him with dignity. What's the opposite of respect? Rudeness. They could have come to him and mocked him. <laughs> Look at those clothes you're wearing. They could have judged him. You must have been a bad person for you to be in this kind of shape. I've had somebody do that to me when I was in the hospital with two broken bones in my leg. I was hit by a car, and one of these people that was upset with my dad and the church came in and said, you've sinned, and this is God's judgment on you. They could have scorned him. You deserve this. They could have teased him. <laughs> hob, hob, you know, you can't even walk right. They, they could come up with their jokes and their puns. They could have teased him. My older brother was a master at it. You know, I, I'm not as good at coming up with those pithy little lines that just sting so hard to your soul. But some of you know, some of you dished them out. Some of you have received way too many of them. You could have just simply done the opposite. Your rudeness could have just turned your head and walked. Because if you go back to when Jesus taught about compassion, he used a parable, a story about a guy who was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho and he, was, he fell among thieves. They beat him up. And if you remember the disrespect of the two religious guys, the Levite and the, and the uh, priest, they came by and what did they do? Whatever you describe what they did, they didn't do it with respect. They were so disrespectful. They didn't even treat him like a person. They almost treated him just like an inanimate stone. Just walk by so you don't trip over him. Do you see the difference? This whole idea about Christians being dangerous for other people to come in is because we often don't show respect to one another. We don't even look at each other in the eye anymore. We can text each other a whole lot easier, right? We don't really love one another because we don't, I don't know if we really do value the soul. I talk about the four things that faith allows you to see. Faith allows you to see God. Oh, we get that. Faith allows you to see the beauty of holiness. That's good. Some of us don't realize that faith also, if it allows you to see what's holy, it allows you to see what's not holy, the ugliness of sin. But the fourth thing that every Christian should have if you have faith is the value of another soul. When you see people that are in sin, you don't say, oh, great, they, I pray God gives them what they deserve. No, your heart's gonna have to be enlarged for them. Don't become a Grinch before he's changed. You, your heart needs to be enlarged. God, what can I do? The pastor in, in, in Edinburgh, he prayed when he looked around Scotland and he said, give me Scotland or I die. Why did he say that? Because there were so many of them that were dying and going to hell. He said, Lord, let me do something to change it. The respect for another soul. Now, the third point is the responding. What do you do after you've recognized the situation? You've respected the person as an individual. Then you're supposed to do something. You're supposed to engage. When you understand in the, the activity that these men did, It burdens you to figure out what needs to be done. When I look at Peter and John looking at this lame man, they already noticed him. They treated him with respect. 
Now the hard part. Or is this the easy part? The next part in responding is you have to know what the need is. You have to have discernment. Not a critical spirit, but a discerning eye. What really is this person asking for? They've got their cup up and they're saying, give me some money. But is that really what they need? Whenever you do lay counseling or even professional counseling, always you try to get to the real reason, not to the reason that's given. You try to probe behind people's actions. People do things, but they often don't explain why they do them. Sometimes they don't even understand why they've done them. But they do it because there's something going on inside of them. Sometimes we call it transference. Sometimes we call it, call it confession. I think I used the illustration last week when the lady at my, at my uncle's funeral, when she stood up and she talked about having communion on Palm Sunday with my uncle. And uh, <laughs> I, still, I still can't believe she did it. And she talked about, well, we'll just have a makeshift communion. So they got the goblets and they filled them up with wine. And then in the midst of her explaining this, she says, I drank it down and really enjoyed it. She was confessing. She was telling me that she wasn't thinking about Jesus. She was thinking about how good it tasted. And how good the quantity was. And she was really enjoying that visit. I mean, you, you get my point. She was revealing things to us. And that's why the other clergy on the, on, the, uh, on the stage with me, he whispered to me, he says, confession is good for the soul. I mean, it was... It was that clear. Why do people do what they do? They often, it's not because of the reason they tell you, but it's tough in this world. When Peter and John looked at the lame man, they discerned that it was not all about the lameness. This man needed something more. How many times had this man been to worship service? How many times had this guy sung God's praises in the church? We have, we have no clue if he ever did. From the text, you would think that he never made it inside the church. Peter and John looked at them and know that God is building his church, that the love of Christ is changing them. And they say, we don't have the things that you think you need, but what we have is better than that because this is what you really need. You need Jesus. And in the name of this Jesus, in faith in him, he will meet your need. The irony of it is that God saw fit that this man was going to be a witness to the rest of the world and even to us today. And he blessed him with strengthening of the leg. He didn't have Dr. Choi to go to. Right then and there, you see the beauty of Peter reaching down and grabbing his hand and lifting him up. He says, rise up and walk. Wow. And you know what the rest of the story is? Is that he did walk. And where did he walk to? Let's look at the Bible and you can see it. This is the first place that this man walked to. If you have your text there, you're going to be able to see um, in verse 6, Peter says, I don't have silver, I don't have gold, I don't have the money, but I have something that you need. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I think he used him because there were other Jesuses. And so this one clarified, there weren't many Jesuses from Nazareth. Everybody knew this guy. Uh, Rise up and walk. And in verse 7, he, he, 
he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong and leaping up. This is the key place. And leaping up, he stood and he began to walk and he entered the church with them. He went to church. I told you that Jesus was going to build his church. And here we see how he builds it with bringing in another living stone. He takes this one guy who's left outside the church. He's left out of everybody's world and he's brought in. And what does he do in the church? Oh, he just takes money, right? He joins with the rest of the saints to praise God and to worship him. When you realize how all this stuff comes together, responding is meeting the need because love is giving what's needed. So the struggle when we find our neighbor who is going through something, who has a bad attitude, who's critical, or who is, who is just off balance, the loving saint, the compassion of Christ should come alongside and cause you to zip your lip a little, don't give them what they deserve, and figure it out what they need. And when you find out what they need, you have to figure out whether you have what they need or not. If you don't have it, then guess what? I love to quote my friend George. I know somebody. He says it with a New York accent, you know. I know somebody. When you know who can meet that need then it's our opportunity to connect people in the body of Christ so that the needs are met, so that people do have what they need in order to be able to worship God. Wow, what a blessing when those needs are met. Instead of just giving somebody a fish, he was, he was doing more than teaching him how to fish. He was giving him a home for eternity. He was giving him a reason to rise up and walk. It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. When you watch the debates and when you go to pull the lever, look for somebody who knows him. Look for somebody who knows him. And if you can't find somebody, pray that God will raise up somebody or maybe you can be a witness to them. Because, but for the grace of God, there goes I. In application, as we come to the Lord's table, this is a story that we often overlook, Right? But you can see that there is a recognition of the need. You can see the respect for the person. And you can see a response that is appropriate to meet the need. The compassion of the body of Christ in action. Where did they learn this? They learned it from Jesus. Because the religion that Jesus taught was, was yes, to take care of the widows and to take care of the orphans. You read that in James. He echoes all those kind of things. He takes care of the ladies as well as the gentlemen. He takes care of the elderly as well as those who, who are, are struggling. In Acts chapter 6, they're, gonna, they're going to ordain deacons so that they can minister to the people who are in that welfare state. They didn't have a government check at the time, if you didn't know. So you have all of these things unfolding. But at this particular time, at the first steps of the early church, you find compassion in front because the Savior is really the most compassionate. I can go through the whole New Testament and list to you, and he had compassion, and he had compassion, and he had compassion, and he had compassion. If you will go through this week and look at the Lord's compassion on people, then I want to ask you, do you have compassion? When you look to Jesus, greater love hath no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. The cross for us is a message of love because it shows us how much Jesus was willing to sacrifice for us.
God so loved the world that he sent his son and Jesus came willingly. He said, Father, I'll do your bidding because he loved us. While we were yet dead in sins and trespasses, we weren't just sitting on the ground there lame asking for money. We were dead. I'm not going to go all the way down. Might not get back up. We were dead. And he had compassion on us while we were dead in sins and trespasses. Christ came. And this communion table reminds us of what he did. Do you know the Christ whose compassion is overwhelming? It's greater than any other in the world. Greater love hath no man than that. We have Christ in us. May the love that we demonstrate, may the words that flow from our lips, may they be transformed so that they're good for the use of edifying, that they build up our neighbors, that they point them to Christ. And this is by no means telling you that you have to just be nice like the other clergy, my friend up in in Canada. He was talking about my uncle's family. And he went on with some of the neighbors and all the people. And, And you know, when you listen to this guy talk about his community... This was nice, this was nice, this was terrific, this was nice, this is terrific, this is wonderful, this is nice. You know what? It made me want to move to his town because there was nobody that was bad there. I don't want you to be phony. I want you to be genuine. When you give people what they need, sometimes that is the word of God which corrects, the word of God which instructs, the word of God that calls people to repent, The word of God that causes people to fall to their knees and cry. When you give people what they need, you have loved them. And that's what Jesus did for us. If the elders would get ready. Dear Lord Jesus, we come to this place in the service where we apply, where we ask the Spirit of God to stir us. Lord, if there's someone in the church that understands that it's not 